I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the British Museum. I'm Joanna Mackle. I'm the Deputy Director here. And I want to especially welcome tonight the London Review of Books and to thank the editor, Mary Kay Wilmers, and all of her team for working together with us for putting on this wonderful um, lecture series now in its fifth year. This was conceived, this lecture series was conceived by Mary Kay, I think five or six years ago, on the basis that we would do it on the cold, three coldest nights of the year, on the, thinking that that would probably be very good for us to come and hear a very interesting um, lecture. So I'm just looking over some of the past highlights very briefly. Jacqueline Rose on Marilyn Monroe, Hilary Mantel on Royal Bodies, Neil Ashton on Europe. They've been extraordinary lectures. And the 2014 season is very especially exciting, starting with James Wood, who Nikki Spice, the publisher of the LRB, will introduce you to in a moment. And Mary Beard on The Public Voice of Women, and Andrew O'Hagan on Julian Assange, on Ghosting Julian Assange. So um, I'd just like now to hand over to Nikki Spice, and I hope you have a wonderful evening. Joanna, thank you so much. To know that you feel this way at the British Museum about the LRB is incredibly heartening for us. And as we sit down to listen to the first of this fifth series of Winter Lectures, we can only marvel once again at your welcome to us, your hospitality and your support. It is really quite hard to believe that it's already five years since Neil McGregor, the director of the museum, inaugurated the Winter Lectures venture with his wonderful talk on the purpose and politics of the British Museum, which so brilliantly anchored the very biggest questions about the politics of culture to intricate interpretations of objects from the museum. Since then, we have heard lectures on the rhetoric of war, T.S. Eliot, Picasso, Kafka, Balzac, Marx, Europe, Marilyn Monroe, Democracy in America, the Royal Body, and Wagner a range that I think well represents the scope of the LRB itself, restating in a different medium the magazine's commitment to the possibility and indeed necessity of an integrated understanding of the world and our unswerving belief in the existence of a community of readers who share this commitment. Now, there is no writer today who better embodies this commitment to an inclusive cultural language than the literary critic and novelist James Wood, whom we are delighted to welcome as our lecturer this evening. The range of James's interest and his technical command are formidable. His four books of collected essays to date are performances of superb elan and dizzying variety, encompassing everything from Sir Thomas More to W.G. Zebalt, Gogol to Don DeLillo, Flaubert to Keith Moon, Edward Wilson to Krasner Hawkeye. James is not only a master of close reading, he is a synoptic teacher, I'm thinking of his book How Fiction Works, and a distinguished and powerful polemicist. His essays on religion, the church, faith, and belief have an unforgettably personal drive to them. James's essays stick in the mind. They change the way one thinks. 
the word that comes to me when I think of James is fearless. There's a fearlessness about his commitment, emotional as well as intellectual, to the writers he cares about, a willingness to put himself on the line for them. There's a fearlessness in his language, his daring to call on figures of speech and elaborations of thought and phrase that push the boundaries of expression so as to draw us into his readings in all their living passion. It was fearless of him, after so many years as the judge and sometimes scourge of other people's work, to expose himself as a novelist, acquitting himself in the book against God with conspicuous panache and distinction. But above all, there was the fearlessness with which, at the start of his career, James launched himself into free space as an independent literary critic. Born in 1965, it was just too late for James to have a university career which would have allowed him to be the literary critic he wished to be, a critic of sensibility, interpretation, and persuasion. By the time he graduated, academic English literature was already fracturing into narrow specialisms, where the great critics of the previous generation still had the freedom to stay close to the text and develop exotic and pungent theories out of their passionate subjectivities. By the late 80s, this was no longer possible. You could no longer hold a university lectureship, really, and be a John Bailey or a Frank Commode, a John Carey, a John Casey, Terry Eagleton, Harold Bloom, or Geoffrey Hartman. If you wanted to continue this tradition of close reading and cultivation of taste and sensibility and belief in the common reader, you would have to do it outside the academy. Pretty much single-handedly, it seemed, James took the title literary critic out of the university and kept it alive in the public space. In his work at The Guardian, The New Yorker, The New Republic, and the LRB, James has forged himself into a public intellectual in the old style, thus continuing a whole tradition that was on the way to dying. And then, after helping to save the animal from extinction, he took it and reintroduced it to its natural habitat, the university, since 2010, he has been professor of the practice of literary criticism at Harvard. As a regular contributor to the LRB for 20 years, as a member of our editorial board, and as a close friend, James has played, plays, and will, we sincerely hope, continue to play for many years to come, a vital part in the life of our magazine. Tonight, he will be talking to us about not going home. We welcome him. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That was a, a lovely introduction from, from uh, Nikki. Um, completely undeserved, I think, uh, but uh, uh, very welcome. Uh, thank you. And I just wanted to say two things before I start. Um, in the, um, in, in, as is my wont, I'll probably throw out a lot of names. Um, and I don't know about you, but I always find it very irritating uh, when I'm listening to a lecture, that is, when I'm not asleep during a lecture. Um, and the... Uh, names are going too fast to write them down, say it's a writer you haven't heard of. Um, so I would simply say that uh, ideally there'd be a handout, um, but uh, since we can't do that, um, this piece will, I think, appear in the uh, London Review of Books. And so those of you who almost got a name of a book or a, a writer and wanted to, to find out what I was talking about can do so when the piece is published. Um, the second thing is that I won't be taking... Uh, questions afterwards, but of course um, I'm going to be around, uh, so if those of you who want to, uh, probably I shouldn't be saying this, is, I, I may be 
um, detained for a very long time. But anyway, those of you who want to, to ask questions, please feel free to do, to do that. Um, I had a piano teacher who used to talk about the most familiar musical cadence in which a piece returns after wandering and variation to its original key, the tonic, as going home. It seemed so easy when music did it. Who wouldn't want to swat away those black accidentals and come back to sunny C major? These satisfying resolutions are sometimes called perfect cadences. And there's a lovely subspecies called the English cadence, used often by composers like Tallis and Bird, in which just before the expected resolution, a dissonance sharpens its blade and seems about to wreck things and is then persuaded home as it should be. I wish I could hear that English cadence again, the way I first properly heard it in Durham Cathedral. I was, I was 11 years old. During the lesson, we choristers had been exchanging notes, probably sniggering at one of the more pompous priests, the one who, as he processed towards his stall, held his clasped hands pointing outwards from his breast like a pious fish. And then we were up on our feet, and we were singing Onata Lux by Thomas Tallis. I, I knew the piece, but hadn't really listened to it. Now I was struck, assaulted, thrown by its utter beauty, the soft equanimity of its articulation, like the voice of justice, the sweet dissonance, welcome as pain. That dissonance with its distinctive Tudor sound is partly produced by a movement or a mechanism known as false relation, in which the note you expect to hear in the harmony of a chord is shadowed by its nearest relation, the same note but a semitone off. So those of you who, who, who uh, uh, play the piano, say, uh, would e easily be able to simulate this if you, say, played a D major chord with your right hand or a D major triad, D, F sharp, and A, and then in, with, in your left hand played a D and an F natural, and the F sharp and the F natural uh, would play off against each other. And it happens that in Talis's Onata looks at the end, so, and which we're going to hear in a minute, um, that's exactly what you get, a lovely playing of F sharp and F uh, natural. Uh, so here is, it's just a two-minute anthem, here is Tom, Tom, Thomas Tallis's Onata Look, sung by the Cambridge Singers.
As the talus was ending, I saw a middle-aged woman with a canvas shoulder bag enter the shadowy hinterland at the back of the huge building. Standing so far away, a singular figure, she might have been a tentative tourist. But I knew the full bag, that coat I always wanted to be a bit more impressive than it was, the anxious rectitude of my mother's posture. She came every Tuesday afternoon because the girls' school she taught at got out early then. My parents lived only a mile or so from the cathedral, but I had to board. Tuesday afternoons, before I went back to school, gave me the chance to exchange a few words and grab whatever she brought in that bag, comics and sweets, and more reliably, socks. In my memory, this is exactly what happened. The radiance of the music, the revelation of its beauty, the final cadences of the talus, and my happy glimpsing of my mother. But it happened 37 years ago, and the scene has a convenient, dreamlike composition. Perhaps I have really dreamed it. As I get older, I dream more frequently of that magnificent cathedral, the long, gray, cool interior hanging somehow like memory itself. These are intense experiences from which I awake hearing every single note of a piece of remembered music, say like that talus. Happy dreams, never troubled. I like returning to that place in my sleep, even look forward to it. But real life is a different matter. The few occasions I've returned to Durham have been strangely disappointing. My parents no longer live there. I no longer live in the country. The city has become a dream. Herodotus says that the Scythians were hard to defeat because they had no cities or settled forts. They carry their houses with them, writes Herodotus, and shoot with bows from horseback. Their dwellings are on their wagons. How can they fail to be invincible and inaccessible for others? To have a home is to become vulnerable, not just to the attacks of others, but to our own adventures in alienation. I left my home twice, the first time just after university, when I borrowed a thousand pounds from the National Westminster Bank in Durham, an account I still have, rented a van one way, put everything I owned into it, and drove south. I remember thinking as I waved at my parents and sister that the gesture was both authentic and oddly artificial, the authorized novelistic journey. In this way, many of us are homeless, the exodus of expansion. The second departure occurred in 1995, when at the age of 30 I left Britain for the United States. I was married to an American, or to put it more precisely, I was married to an American citizen whose French father and Canadian mother themselves immigrants lived in the States. We had no children, and America would be surely new and exciting. We might even stay there for a few years, five at the most. I've now lived 18 years in the U.S. It's a bit feeble to say I didn't expect to stay as long, and ungrateful or even meaningless or dishonest to say I didn't want to. I must have wanted to. There's been plenty of gain. But I had so little concept of what might be lost. Losing a country or losing a home, if I ever gave the matter much thought when I was young, was an acute world historical event, forcibly meted out on the victim, lamented and canonized in literature and theory as exile or displacement, and defined with appropriate terminality by Edward Said in his essay, Reflections on Exile. And this is Said writing. Exile is strangely compelling to think about, but terrible to experience. It is the unhealable rift forced between a human being and a native place, between the self and its true home. Continues Said, its essential sadness can never be surmounted. And while it's true that literature and history contain heroic, romantic, glorious, even 
triumphant episodes in an exile's life. These are no more than efforts meant to overcome the crippling sorrow of estrangement. The achievements of exile are permanently undermined, continues Said, by the loss of something left behind forever. Said's emphasis on the true home, the unhealable rift between a self and a true home, has a slightly theological or perhaps platonic sound. When there is such universal homelessness of both the forced and the unforced kind, the idea of a true home surely suffers an amount of unsympathetic modification. Perhaps Said's implication is that unwanted homelessness only really bears down on those who have a true home and thus always reinforces the purity of the origin, while voluntary homelessness, the softer emigration I'm trying to define, means that home can't have been very true after all. I doubt he intended that. But nonetheless, the desert of exile seems to need the oasis of primal belonging, the two held in a biblical clasp. In that essay, Said distinguishes between exile, refugee, expatriate, and emigre. Exile, as he understands it, is tragic homelessness, connected to the ancient sentence of banishment. He approves of Adorno's subtitle to Minima Moralia, Reflections from a Mutilated Life. It's hard to see how the milder, unforced journey I'm describing could ever belong to this grander vision of suffering. Not going home is not exactly the same as homelessness. That nice old boarding school standby homesickness might do better, particularly if allowed a certain doubleness. I'm sometimes homesick, where homesickness is a kind of longing for Britain and an irritation with Britain, sickness for and sickness of. I bump into plenty of people in America who tell me that they miss their native countries, Britain, Germany, Russia, Holland, South Africa, and who in the next breath say they couldn't imagine returning. It's possible, I suppose, to miss home terribly, not know what home really is anymore, and refuse to go home all at once. Such a tangle of feelings might then be a definition of luxurious freedom, as far removed from Said's tragic homelessness as can be imagined. Logically, a refusal to go home should validate negatively the very idea of home, rather in the way that Said's idea of exile validates the idea of an original true home. But perhaps the refusal to go home is consequent upon the loss or lack of home, as if those fortunate expatriates were really saying to me, I couldn't go back home because I wouldn't know how to anymore. And there is home, with a capital H, and a home. Authors used to be described on book dust jackets as making a home. Mr. Blackmer makes his home in Princeton, New Jersey, I remember. I've made a home in the U.S., but it's not quite home with a capital H. For instance, I have no desire to become an American citizen. Recently, when I arrived at Boston, the immigration officer commented on the length of time I've held a green card. A green card is usually considered a path to citizenship, he said, a sentiment both irritatingly reproving and movingly patriotic. I mumbled something about how he was perfectly correct and left it at that. But consider the fundamental openness and generosity of the gesture, along with the undeniable coercion. It's hard to imagine his British counterpart so freely offering citizenship as if it were indeed uncomplicatedly on offer, a service or commodity. He was generously saying, would you like to be an American citizen, along with the less generous, why don't you want to be an American citizen? Can we imagine either sentiment being expressed at Heathrow Airport? 
The poet and novelist Patrick McGuinness, in his forthcoming book, Other People's Countries, itself a rich analysis of home and homelessness. Uh, McGuinness is half Irish and half Belgian. Quotes Simnon, who was asked why he didn't change his nationality the way successful Francophone Belgians did, uh, often did. Simnon replied, it's a genius response, there was no reason for me to be born Belgian, so there's no reason for me to stop being Belgian. That's good. That, that's a good one, isn't it? We, we, we all need to remember that. Um, I wanted to say something similar, less wittily, to the American immigration officer, precisely because I don't need to become an American citizen. To take citizenship would seem flippant, leave its benefits for those who need a new land. So whatever this state I'm talking about is, this not going home, it's not tragic. There's probably something a bit ridiculous in these privileged laments. Oh, sing them Harvard blues, white boy. But I'm trying to describe some kind of loss, some kind of slippage or falling away. The gain is obvious enough and thus less interesting to analyze. I asked Christopher Hitchens long before he was terminally ill where he would go if he had only a few weeks to live. Would he stay in America? No. I'd go to Dartmoor without a doubt, or rather, no, I'd go to Dartmoor without a doubt. He told me it was the landscape of his childhood, Dartmoor, not the M.D. Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. It's not uncommon for expatriates, emigres, refugees, and travelers to want to die at home. The desire to return after so long away is gladly irrational and is perhaps premised on the loss of the original home, as the refusal to go home may also be premised on the loss of an original home. Home swells as a sentiment because it's disappeared as an achievable reality. Marussia Tatarovich, the heroine of the novel A Foreign Woman, by the Russian emigre writer Sergei Dovlatov, comes to the conclusion that she's made a mistake in leaving Russia for New York City and decides to return. Dovlatov, who left the Soviet Union for America in 1979 and who appears as himself in the novel, tries to talk her out of it. You've just forgotten what life is like there in Russia, he says. The rudeness, the lies. She replies, if people are rude in Moscow, at least it's in Russian, which you can't really argue with, can you? But she stays in America. I once saw in Germany a small exhibition of Samuel Beckett's correspondence to his German publisher. Many brief note cards were arranged chronologically, the last written only a few months before his death. Beckett wrote to his publisher not in German but in French, a language in which he was, of course, deeply at home. But in the final year of his life, I noticed, he switched to English. Going home, I thought. And I, I know anecdotally, by the way, seeing the last year uh, of my uh, father-in-law's life, a Frenchman who lived 50 years in, in, in the States, um, that having initially, for the first 20 years of his life in America, dreamt only in French, and then started dreaming in both languages, in the last six months, no, the last year of his life, because um, I actually asked him this, he, he said he, he was not dreaming anymore in English and had started dreaming in French again. After so many years, life in America, or, or in my small part of America, has become my life. And life is made up of particulars, friends, conversations, dailiness of all sorts. I love, for instance, that certain New England states alert drivers that they are entering a built-up area with the sign, Thickly Settled. Actually, I could do better than that. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, Appleton Street, Appleton Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts is a hill, and there is a sign on the road to alert the driver to the fact that it's a hill, and it simply says hill. 
It's great. Anyway, thickly settled. Um, I love the Hudson River, its steady brown flow. Generally, I like how most American rivers make their European rivals look like wan streams. There's the crimson livery of the boar's head trucks, or the way the mailman delivering the post in the dark winter afternoon wears a little miner's lamp on his head and peers down at his paper bundle. Large American radiators in old apartment buildings with their hissing and ghostly clanking. A certain general store in New Hampshire that sells winter boots, hand cream, excellent bacon, and firearms. I cherish the phrase, take it easy, and the scandalous idea that people would actually say this to each other, take it easy. I'm even fond now of things that reliably irritate Europeans, especially the British, American sports, say, or the fact that the word fortnight does not exist, (laughs) that fudge is just chocolate, and that seemingly no one can properly pronounce the words croissant, milieu, or bourgeois. Uh, Roughly speaking, that is croissant, milieu, and bourgeois. Um, Though, I have to say, I'm not sure I'm very good at croissant either. The the Anglo-Saxon tendency to do the quacking sound instead of the instead of the kh sound, uh, is there to, to catch one out. Uh, and maybe we should always be mindful anyway of, uh, of, of uh, George Orwell's thing about how to, how to properly speak. If you properly speak uh, something in a foreign language, uh, it's generally a sign of effeminacy. Um, <laughs> so. But there's always the reality of a certain outsiderdom. Take the beautiful American train horn, the crushed klaxon peal you can hear almost anywhere in the States, at the end of my street at nighttime, across a New Hampshire valley, in some small Midwestern town, a crumple of notes blown out on an easy, loitering wail. And I think we actually have a little clip of an American, various American train horns. So here we go. It sounds less like a horn than a sudden prairie wind or an animal's cry. That big, easy loiter is, for me, the sound of America, whatever America is. But it must also be the sound of America for thousands, perhaps millions, of non-Americans. It's a shared possession, not a personal one. I'm outside it. I appreciate it as something slightly distant. It's unhistorical for me. It doesn't have my past in it. drags no, no old associations. We lived about half a mile from Durham Station. And from my bedroom at night, I could hear the arrhythmic thunder of the big yellow-nosed Deltic diesels as they pulled their shabby carriages onto the Victorian viaduct that curves out of town, bound for London or Edinburgh, and sometimes blew their parsimonious horns, the British Rail Minor Third. Remember that? You don't get it anymore, or not as much, I think. Uh, But then how would I know? Um... Or suppose I'm looking down our Boston street, the street we live on, in dead summer. I see a familiar life, the clabbered houses, the porches, the heat mirage hanging over the patched road, snakes of asphalt like black chewing gum, the gray cement sidewalks, signed in one place when the cement was new by three young siblings, the heavy maple trees, the unkempt willow down at the end, an old white Cadillac with the bumper sticker, Ted Kennedy has killed more people than my gun. And I feel... 
I feel, apart from laughing, uh, I feel nothing. Um, some recognition, but no comprehension, no real connection, no past, despite all the years I've lived there. Just a tugging distance from it all. A panic suddenly overtakes me, and I wonder, how did I get here? And then the moment passes, and ordinary life closes itself around what had seemed for a moment a desperate lack. Edward Said says that it's no surprise that exiles are often novelists, chess players, intellectuals. The exile's new world, he writes, logically enough, is unnatural, and its unreality resembles fiction, close quote. He reminds us that Georg Lukács considered the novel the great form of what Lukács called transcendental homelessness. I'm not an exile, but it's sometimes hard to shake the unreality Said speaks of. I watch my children grow up as Americans in the same way that I might read about or create fictional characters. They are not fictional, of course, but their Americanism can sometimes seem unreal to me. I have an American seventh grader, I say to myself with amazement as I watch my 12-year-old daughter perform at one of those dastardly school events always held in gymnasiums. Doubtless, amazement attends all the stages of a child's growth. All is unexpected. But there's also that strange distance, the light veil of alienation thrown over everything. And then there is the same light veil thrown over everything when I go back to Britain, too. When I was first living in the States, I was eager to keep up with life back at home, who was in the cabinet, the new music, what people were saying in the newspapers, how the schools were doing, the price of petrol, the shape of friends' lives, even the weather. It became harder to do so because the meaning of these things grew less and less personal. For me, English reality has disappeared or is disappearing into memory, has changed itself into past, as Larkin has it. I know very little about modern daily life in London, really, or Edinburgh, or Durham. There's a quality of masquerade when I return, as if I were putting on a wedding suit to see if it still fits. In America, I crave the English reality that has disappeared. Childhood seems breathingly close. But the sense of masquerade persists. I gorge on nostalgia, on fondnesses that might have embarrassed me when I lived in Britain. Jeff Dyer writes funnily in his book, Out of Sheer Rage, about how when he was living in Italy, he developed an obsession with reading the TV listings in English papers, even though he'd never watched telly when he lived in England and didn't like it. <laughs> Jeff Dyer makes sort of three pages out of that, of course, because he's very good at riffing. In fact, he made a whole piece out of it, I think. To hear a Geordie voice on an American news program leaves me flushed with longing. The dance of that dialect with its seasick Scandinavian pitch and all those fabulous words, segs, the metal plates that you would bang into your shoe heels to make sparks on the ground and act like a bit of a hard nut. Kets, sweets. Neb, nose. Nout, nothing. Stotty cake, kind of flat, doughy bread. Claggy, sticky. The way northerners say E as an exclamation. E, it's red hot today. Any temperature over about 72 degrees. Recently, I heard the old song, When the Boat Comes In, on National Public Radio, and I almost wept. Now, come here, little Jackie, now I've smoked me cracky. Sorry, I did that wrong. I'll do it again. Now, come here, little Jackie, now I've smoked me packy. Let's have some cracky till the boat comes in. And you shall have a fishy on a little dishy. You shall have a fishy when the boat comes in. Dance to your daddy, sing to your mommy. Dance to your daddy till your mommy sings. But I really disliked that song when I was a boy. 
I really disliked that song. And you know what I really disliked? Actually, I think all other northerners really dislike it too. I really disliked the scoop on boat when the boat comes in. I never had a very northern accent. My father was born in London. It might be worth saying just at this point, something I left out of the the printed text for obvious reasons because my parents are still alive and it's not something I can write about. But... um, uh, I had wanted to put into this talk, since it's about narratives of not going home, a very acute narrative in my family, which is that I grew up never meeting my uh, father's parents. I never knew my my grandparents, even though they were alive. Actually, one of them lived until 100 and was alive until 2003. Um, When I was growing up, my dad was born in East London, and when I was growing up, it was understood that they hadn't been... His parents hadn't been very nice to him, there was also a clear understanding that he came from the working classes and, and that when he married my mother, he moved up into the middle classes and that she didn't want much to do with them. Um, the second bit was true. The first bit wasn't. That's to say they hadn't been at all unpleasant to him. Um, and I think he'd had quite a loving um, environment uh, to grow up in. Uh, but it's also true that they were uneducated. My grandfather was a white-collar a buyer for the Ford factory in Dagenham. Um, and that in a, a narrative that I think is very familiar to us, uh, of post-war uh, grammar school um, success, um, my father felt that he didn't have much in common with them and sort of nudged by my mother's snobbery, um, abandoned them. Uh, so I never, I, I, I never met them. One of the reasons I think I probably go diligently back so often to see my parents who now live up in Scotland uh, is precisely because I grew up with that um, with that narrative of, of, of abandonment, of not, of not going home. My father simply stopped uh, seeing them and uh, did not know uh, when, they, when either his father or mother died. It was important to my apparently mobile, uh, sorry, apparently mobile, upwardly mobile Scottish petty bourgeois mother that I didn't sound like a Geordie. Friends used to say, with a bit of menace in their voices, you don't you don't talk like a Durham lad. Where are you from? Sometimes it was necessary to mimic the accent to fit in or avoid getting beaten up. I could never say, as the man, man in the song, Home Newcastle, foolishly does, and I'm proud to be a Geordie and to live in Geordie land. My town was the university and the cathedral. It seemed that almost everyone who lived on our street was an academic, like my father, a zoologist, or a clergyman, and they didn't sound like Geordies. How vivid all those neighbors are in my mind and how strange they were. I think now that in the 1970s, I caught the fading comet end of allowable eccentricity. There was Mrs. Jolly, though she was in fact anything but, who walked with three canes, one for the left leg and two bound together with string for the right. There was the dry, bony reader in classical epigraphy, Dr. Fowler, who was fond of repeating as a kind of motto, tell it not in gath. I had no idea what he was talking about for 15 years. <laughs> Tell it not in Gath. Next door to us, separated only by a wall, lived a profoundly learned scholar, the university librarian. He knew many languages and pages of Dickens by heart, and sometimes we would hear him pacing up and down, reciting and laughing. A sweet, innocent child, really, a Dickensian character himself. One day he was on the bus with my father going to the university and embarrassed him by loudly opining, You could say that the girls who serve in Woolworths are the intellectual scum of the earth. 
This academic religious world had obscure prohibitions and rules. There was a historian who, for some reason, forbade his two slightly green-hued, fearsomely clever daughters from watching the Foresight saga on television. And a thrifty professor of divinity whose household had no television and who, according to my mother, always had sausages, never turkey, on Christmas Day. That family's fantastical drabness sealed in my childish mind by the information that he and his wife and three children exchanged only cotton handkerchiefs as presents. <laughs> our headmaster at the Durham Chorister School, also a clergyman, told us that we should start our essays with a bang. Bacon began his essay on gardens. God Almighty first planted a garden. Try to emulate Bacon. <laughs> so it's actually a good rule for journalism, isn't it? Uh, he had an elaborate system of mnemonics, this teacher, to help us with difficult Latin words. Whenever the word unde appeared in a text, he would suck on his pipe and intone in Oxonian basso, Marks and Spencer, Marks and Spencer. This was supposed to trigger, where do you get your undies from Marks and Spencer? And then lead us to the meaning of the word, which is where. <laughs> As you can see, I haven't forgotten it. A recent editorial in the Brooklyn-based literary journal... Now it gets boring. This is the boring part of the lecture. No, no, I'm just joking. A recent editorial in the Brooklyn-based literary journal N Plus One invade against so-called world literature. In their opinion, post-colonial writing has lost its political bite and now fills its toothless face at the trough of global capitalism. Midnight's children gave way, as it were, to the inoffensive, party-going Rushdie of the ground beneath her feet. The essay argued that world literature should really be called global literature. It has its royalty, like Kurtzier, Nondachi, Mosin Hamid, Kiran Desai, its prizes, the Nobel, the International Man Booker, its festivals, Jaipur, Hay, and its intellectual support system, the universities. The success of world literature, said the editors, is a byproduct of successful capitalism and of a globalized aesthetic that prizes writers who, like Orhan Pamuk, Mian Zhan and Haruki Murakami are thought to have transcended local issues and acquired what the magazine called a universal relevance. It was hard not to share their derision once its victim had been so tendentiously trussed. Who could possibly approve of this complacent, festival-haunting, unit-shifting, prize-winning monster? Who wouldn't choose instead, as the editors did, a thorny internationalism over the smoothly global untranslatable felicities over Windy Width and Elena Ferrante over Camilla Shamsi. In the end, the journal was really making a wise case for well-written, vital, challenging literature full of sharp local particularities wherever it turns up in the world. And so there was inevitably something a bit random about the writers it chose for its preferred canon of thorny internationalists. Elena Ferrante, Kirill Medvedev, Samant Subramanian, and Juan Villarreal. Perhaps, though, post-colonial literature hasn't morphed, or hasn't only morphed, into a bloated world lit. One of its new branches may be a significant contemporary literature that moves between and powerfully treats questions of homelessness, displacement, emigration, voluntary or economic migration, and even flaneurial tourism, a literature that blurs the demarcations offered by Said in reflections on exile, because emigration itself has become more complex, amorphous, and widespread. N plus one inaudibly conceded as much in its editorial 
when it praised Open City by Teju Cole, a Nigerian writer based in New York City, whose first novel, Open City, is narrated by a young half-Nigerian, half-German psychiatry intern, and which mixes elements of familiar post-coloniality with W.G. Sebald's flannerial emigre sensibility. Cole, it seems, was approved of by the journal, but didn't quite make the thorny internationalist cut. But but to Open City could be added W.G. Sebald's work, Patrick McGuinness's Other People's Countries, which I just mentioned, the Nigerian novelist Taye Selassie, Joseph O'Neill's Netherland, which makes acute distinctions between the privileged economic migration of the Dutch banker who narrates the novel and the much less privileged immigration of the Trinidadian trickster who is the book's tragic hero. The work of the Bosnian-American writer Alexander Hemon, Marilyn Robinson's Home, some of the writing of Jeff Dyer, the stories of Nam Lee, a Vietnamese-born Australian, the fiction and essays of the Indian novelist Amit Chowdhury, which... Uh, those of you who've read certainly his essays know he's very acute, uh, a very acute critic, I think, of, the, of, of uh, windy ideas of glo- globalization. The great movement of peoples, this is a quote, the great movement of peoples that was to take place in the second half of the 20th century that V.S. von Naipaul spoke of in The Enigma of Arrival was, as Naipaul put it, a movement between all the continents. It could no longer be confined to a single paradigm, post-colonialism, internationalism, globalism, world literature. The jet engine has probably had a greater impact on the world than the internet. It brings a Nigerian to New York, a Bosnian to Chicago, a Mexican to Berlin, an Australian to London, a German to Manchester. It brought one of N plus one's founding editors, Keith Gesson, as a little boy from Russia to America in 1981, and now takes him back and forth between those countries, a liberty unknown, of course, to emigres like Nabokov or Sege Dovlatov. Recall Lukash's phrase, transcendental homelessness. What I've been describing both in my own life and the lives of others is more like secular homelessness. It can't claim the theological prestige of the transcendent. Perhaps it isn't even homelessness. Home looseness, L-O-O, home looseness with, with an admixture of loss might be the necessary hideous neologism in which the ties that bind one to home have been loosened, perhaps happily, perhaps unhappily, perhaps permanently, perhaps only temporarily. Clearly, this secular homelessness overlaps at times with the more established categories of emigration, exile, and post-colonial movement. Just as clearly, it diverges from them at times. W.G. Sebald, a German writer who lived most of his adult life in England and who was thus perhaps an emigrant, certainly an immigrant, but not exactly an emigre or an exile, had an exquisite sense of the varieties of not belonging. He came to Manchester from Germany in the mid-60s as a graduate student. He returned briefly to Switzerland and then came back to England in 1970 to take a lectureship at the University of East Anglia. The pattern of his own emigration is one of secular homelessness or home looseness. He had the economic freedom to return to West Germany, and once he was well-known in the mid-90s, he could have worked almost anywhere he wanted to. Sebald was interested, however, not in his own wandering, but in an, immigra- but in an emigration and displacement closer to tragic or transcendental homelessness. In The Emigrants, he wrote about four such wanderers. Dr. Henry Selwyn, a Lithuanian Jew who arrived in Britain at the beginning of the 20th century, and who lived a life 
of stealthy masquerade as an English doctor before committing suicide late in life. Paul Bereiter, a German who, because of his part Jewish ancestry, was prohibited from teaching during the Third Reich, never recovered from this setback and later committed suicide. Sebald's great-uncle Adelwart, who arrived in America in the 1920s, worked as a servant for a wealthy family on Long Island, but ended up in a mental asylum in Ithaca, New York. And Max Ferber, a fictional character based on the painter Frank Auerbach, who left his parents behind in Germany in 1939, of course never saw them again, when he escaped for England. When the emigrants appeared in Michael Hulse's English translation in 1996, it was often described as a book about four victims of the Holocaust, which it was not. Only two of the emigrants are direct victims. Because the book is deeply invested in questions of fictionality, decipherment, and archival witness, and because of the book's teasing photographs, it was also often assumed that these were fictional or fictionalized sketches. Almost the opposite is true. They're more like documentary life studies. Sebal told me in an interview that about 90% of the photographs were, quote, what you would describe as authentic, i.e. they really did come out of the photo albums of the people described in those texts and are a, a direct testimony of the fact that these people did exist in that particular shape and form, close quote. In fact, Sebal said in that interview, and I remember it because I asked him for an example of a photograph that, that wasn't veridical or that he'd faked, and his example was, uh, those of you who know the book, in the Ambrose Adelwart section, there's a little note that he pins to the wall which simply reads, Gone to Ithaca. And Sebald wrote that himself and did a little snapshot of it and then put it in the book. Um, Sebald did indeed, did, indeed, did indeed meet Dr. Selwyn in 1970. Paul Bereiter was Sebald's primary school teacher. His great-uncle Adelwart immigrated to America in the 1920s and Max Ferber's life was closely modeled on Frank Auerbach's. None of this suggests that Sebald doesn't enrich the documentary evidence in all kinds of subtle, slippery, fictive ways. And one of the subtleties involves his relationship, as a kind of emigrant himself, with his subjects. Henry Selwyn and Max Ferber were essentially political, political refugees from different waves of 20th century Jewish flight. Adelwart was an economic immigrant, and Paul Bereiter became an inner emigrant, a post-war German survivor who in the end did not survive. And Sebald himself? His own emigration would seem to play out in a minor key by comparison. Officially, he could return to his homeland whenever he wanted, but perhaps he had decided for, politi for political reasons that he never could go home again, could never return to a country whose unfinished post-war business had so disgusted him in the 1960s. Sebald is a ghostly presence in the emigrants, were offered only glimpses of the German academic in East Anglia. Yet, in another way, the author is strongly present in the book, felt as a steady insistence in regulated hysteria. Who is this apparently well-established professor, so obsessed with the lives of his subjects that he crosses Europe or the Atlantic to interview their relatives, ransack their archives, frown over their photograph albums, and follow their journeys? There's a beautiful moment in the first story about Dr. Henry Selwyn, when the text glances at Sebald's own lesser homelessness and then glances away, as if politely conceding its smaller claim on tragedy. And this is the quote. On one of these visits, Clara being away in town, Dr. Selwyn and I had a long talk, prompted by his asking whether I was ever homesick. I could not think of any adequate reply. But Dr. Selwyn, after a pause for thought, confessed no other word will do. 
that in recent years he had been beset by homesickness more and more. Uh, I'm going to read it again, uh, just because I think it's useful. I always like it when people repeat things uh, in quotes. Um, but also, I think it's such a beautiful example of Sebald's extraordinary control, that sort of, uh, I don't know what, it, well, that reticent control he has over, uh, over his uh, diction and the um, very beautiful, I suppose, in some ways, slightly studied way uh, that he lets emotion in. Um, it's worth saying the, the phrase, no other word will do, is within a small parenthesis. On one of these visits, Clara being away in town, Dr. Selwyn and I had a long talk, prompted by his asking whether I was ever homesick. I could not think of any adequate reply. But Dr. Selwyn, after a pause for thought, confessed, no other word will do, that in recent years he had been beset by homesickness more and more. Sebald then describes Dr. Selwyn's homesickness for the village in Lithuania he had to leave at the age of seven. We hear about the horse ride to the station, the train journey to Riga, the ship from Riga, and the arrival in a broad river estuary. Quote, All the emigrants had gathered on deck, and we were waiting for the Statue of Liberty to appear out of the drifting mist, since every one of them had booked a passage to Americum, as we called it. When we disembarked, we were still in no doubt whatsoever that beneath our feet was the soil of the new world, of the promised city of New York. But in fact, as we learnt some time later to our dismay, the ship having long since cast off again, we had gone ashore in London. I find moving the way in which Sebald's homesickness becomes Selwyn's is swallowed up by the acuter claims of the larger narrative. We can only guess at the smothered anguish in Sebald's primly painful aside, I could not think of any adequate reply. There is also perhaps something touchingly estranged, unhoused even, about Sebald's language, the peculiar, reticent, antiquarian prose in an English created by Michael Hulse and then strenuously worked over by the bilingual author. Um, I saw, I've seen a couple of these pages, uh, manuscript pages, and they're really extraordinary. Um, there's Michael Hulse's English, and then uh, sometimes entire lines are crossed out by Sebald, who then writes his own correction of the translation. In that sense, I think, when we read Sebald, I don't know what it was like with other translators, uh, with his later translator, um, uh, Anthea Bell, but I think it's certainly in the case of the emigrants, it's worth thinking not that we're reading um, uh, a prose that's been translated from the German, but that in effect we're reading Sebald's English. Um, I, I, I think that's fair. Sebald seems to know the difference between homesickness and homelessness, or between, or between homelessness and home looseness. If there's anguish, there's also discretion. How could my loss adequately compared with yours. Where exile is often marked by the absolutism of the separation, secular homelessness is marked by a certain provisionality, a structure of departure and return that may not end. This is a powerful motif in the work of Alexander Hemon, a Bosnian-American writer who came to the States from Sarajevo in 1992, only to discover that the siege of his hometown prohibited his return. Hemon stayed in America, learned how to write a brilliant Nabokovian English, a feat in some sense greater than Nabokov's because achieved at a steroidal pace. Uh, that's to say, Nabokov is born essentially into three languages and takes a nice time uh, becoming fluent 
uh, and English. And Hemon comes to America in 1992 with fairly rudimentary English and within eight, within eight years has published a book in extraordinary English. Um, he published his first book, The Question of Bruno, in 2000, dedicated to his wife and to the city of Sarajevo. Once the Bosnian War was over, Hemon could presumably have returned to his native city. What had not been a choice became one. He decided to make himself into an American writer. Hemon's work stages both his departure and return. In the novella Blind Joseph Proneck and Dead Souls, Joseph Proneck arrives in America on a student exchange program. Like Hemon, Proneck is from Sarajevo, is trapped by the war, and stays in America. He finds the United States a bewildering, alienating place full of vulgarity and ignorance. When, near the end of the story, he returns to Sarajevo, the reader expects him to stay. Though the city is terribly damaged and familiar landmarks have disappeared, he seems to have come back to his true home, where, quote, every place had a name and everybody and everything in that place had a name and you could never be nowhere because there was something everywhere, close quote. Sarajevo, it seems, is where names and things, words and reference, are primarily, primarily united. He goes through his parents' apartment, touching everything. And in itself, it's a very touching paragraph, which I'm only quoting about half of. The clean, striped tablecloth, the radio with seven ivory-colored buttons and a Donald Duck sticker, the grinning African masks, the carpets with intricate yet familiar geometric patterns full of gashes from under which the parquet was gone, burnt in the rusty iron stove in the corner, the demitasse, the coffee grinder, the spoons, father's suits damp with shrapnel slashes. But Joseph doesn't stay, and, the novella, and as the novella closes, we see him in Vienna Airport about to board a flight to America. Quote, he did not want to fly to Chicago. He imagined walking from Vienna to the Atlantic Ocean and then hopping on a slow transatlantic steamer. It would take a month to get across that ocean, and he would be on the sea, land and borders nowhere to be found. Then he would see the Statue of Liberty and walk slowly to Chicago, stopping wherever he wished, talking to people, telling them stories about far-off lands, where people ate honey and pickles, where no one put ice in the water, where pigeons nested in pantries. Close quote. It's as if jet flight is existentially shallow. A slower journey would enact the gravity and enormity of the transformation. Pronek returns to America but, but must take his home with him and must try to tell incomprehensible stories, pigeons in the attics, honey and pickles, of that home to a people who readily confuse Bosnia with Slovakia and write off the war as thousands of years of hatred. And at the same time, he's making a new home in America, or not quite, for he will stay in America, but will, it seems, never rid himself of the idea that putting ice in the water is a foolish superfluity. And like Sebald, though, in a different register, Hamon writes a prose that doesn't sound smoothly native. Recall the N plus one phrase, the smoothly global versus the thorny internationalist. It doesn't sound smoothly native. It's a fractionally homeless prose. Like his master Nabokov, he has the immigrant's love, love of puns, of finding buried meanings in words that have become flattened in English, like vacuous and petrified. Um, this is a tendency, isn't it, of, of immigrants. My, my uh, father-in-law used to do it. Uh, used to drive me mad. Um, he would just always, you know, you'd, you'd come out with a phrase or a cliche and he'd, he'd find the, the buried meaning and remind you of it. Um, 
He was obsessed, for instance, that the Archbishop of Canterbury is called First Primate of England. He would always say... <laughs> well, it is funny, isn't it? He'd always call him the Chief Chimpanzee. Um, and, you know, Nabokov used to do this the whole time, so the publisher Doubleday would be Day-Day and things like that. Um, one character in Hemon has a sagely beard, um, which I think is just a straightforward mistake, but I, and I'm sure Hemon was told you can't... You can have a sage beard. You can't have a sagely beard. Um, I'm sure he was told that, and he thought, to hell with it. It's going in. <laughs> Another has fenestral glasses. So there's the real Nabokovian thing, isn't there? Going back to the, to, to the root. Fenestral glasses. T is described as limpid. Exile is acute, massive, transformative, but secular homelessness, because it moves along its axis of departure and return, can be banal, necessary, continuous, inevitable. There's the movement of the provincial to the metropolis or the journey out of one social class into another. This was my mother's journey from Scotland to England, my father's journey from the working classes into the middle classes. Though I would hope that most people's journeys are not quite as painful as his. My short drive from Durham to London. It's Ursula Brangwen's struggle for departure at the end of the rainbow when she quarrels with her parents about leaving her home in the Midlands and becoming a teacher in Kingston-upon-Thames what her father calls dancing off to the other side of London. Most of us have to leave home at least once. There is the need to leave, the difficulty of returning, and then in later life, as one's parents begin to falter, the need to return again. Secular homelessness might be the inevitable ordinary state, not the singular extremity of exile or the chosenness of biblical diaspora. Secular homelessness is not just what will always occur in Eden, but what should occur in Eden again and again. There's a beautiful section at the end of Ismail Kadari's great novel, Chronicle of Stone, entitled Draft of a Memorial Plaque. Kadare was born in 1936 in the city of Jirokesta in south, southern Albania, but has spent much of his writing life in Paris. Chronicle of Stone is a joyful comic tribute to the ancient native city he left behind. At the end of the book, Kadare directly addresses his hometown. Quote, Often striding along wide, lighted boulevards in foreign cities, I somehow stumble in places where no one ever trips. Passers-by turn in surprise, but I always know it's you. You emerge from the asphalt all of a sudden and then sink back down straight away. It's Kadare's nicely humdrum version of the moment in Proust when Marcel stumbles on the uneven stones in the Guermont courtyard and memory opens itself up. But if you didn't trip up, you wouldn't remember anything. For the Parisian emigre writer, returning to live in Girocaster is doubtless unimaginable, in rather the way that living in Paris must have seemed unimaginable when Kadare was a young man in Albania. But a life without stumbling is also unimaginable. Perhaps to be in between two places, to be at home in neither, is the inevitable fallen state, almost as natural as to be at home in one. Almost, but not quite. When I left this country 18 years ago, I didn't know then how strangely departure would obliterate return. How could I have done? It's one of time's lessons and can only be learnt temporarily. What's peculiar even a little bitter about living for so many years away from the country of my birth is the slow revelation that I made a large choice a long time ago that did not resemble a large choice at the time. That it has taken years for me to see this 
and that this process of retrospective comprehension in fact constitutes a life, is indeed how life is lived. Freud has a wonderful word, afterwardness, which I need to borrow even at the cost of kidnapping it from its very different context. To think about home and the departure from home, about not going home and no longer feeling able to go home, is to be filled with a remarkable sense of afterwardness. It's too late to do anything about it now, and too late to know what should have been done, and that may be all right. My Scottish grandmother used to play a game in which she entered the room with her hands behind her back. You had to guess which hand held a sweet, as she intoned, which hand do you tack the richt or the rang? Which hand do you take, the right or the, or the wrong? When we were children, the decision seemed momentous. You had at all costs to avoid the disappointment of the empty rang hand. Which did I choose? Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.